Okay, so we've all seen it before, I'm sure, on the uh, eve of a heavyweight title fight. Uh, You know how it is, the two boxers, the two contestants, they get together for what is the infamous weigh-in. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've seen the weigh-in before. You're familiar with the scene. Uh, There's a room, it's packed. Uh, The world's media are all in attendance. You've got up there, you've got in front of you the two opposing camps. But yet, in reality, all eyes are fixed upon what? The two fighters. Everyone's looking at the fighters. They're now standing at the edge of the stage, aren't they? But they're now standing facing each other, standing toe-to-toe. Now, I'm sure you would agree that normally that's all a bit of a charade, isn't it? Normally the whole thing, the weigh-in is a bit bit of a farce, uh, really. But sometimes it's different, isn't it? Sometimes you know what it's like. Sometimes the preceding war of words between those two camps has kind of got out of control, hasn't it? It's all got a little bit heated. And sometimes those two men who are standing opposite each other, they really actually do properly loathe one another. Well, this morning, friends, in here, as we turn to Esther chapter 2 and 3, something similar that we are dealing with in these verses. Because get this, these two men that we're going to be looking at today, who are they? Haman and Mordecai. They're not just foes. These are two men who are locked together in a proper old-fashioned standoff. And this is a standoff that has huge implications, not just for them, but for all of the people of Israel. And here's the important thing. It is a standoff that has much to teach you, much to teach me today, about the spiritual war. The spiritual battle in which we, as the people of God, as Christians, are engaged. So, with that said, I would ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. If you're visiting today, you'll find a a Bible round about your chair somewhere. You can share with the person next to you. But please turn with me to Esther chapter 2 and to Esther 2 from verse 19. Let's hear what God has to say to us today. First of all, let's notice here the injustice of the world. The injustice of the world. Now, last time we were, we had a break last week, but last time we were in Esther, coincidentally, it was for a wedding. Was it not? Do you remember what happened last time? The search for Vashti's successor had been successful. And so we left things last time with Esther being crowned queen. It was almost something of a wedding, wasn't there? There was a big banquet in Esther's honor. Well, Just as it does uh, an opera, or just as it does in the theatre, the curtain has gone down on that scene. And you know how it is, there's an interval, there's a little break, and as we come back into this portion of scripture, as the curtain rises, what do we see? We see that there's actually been a bit of a set change, hasn't there? So last time, where were we? We were in the palace for this great celebration. 
But today, where are we? Today we are with this man, Mordecai, as he sits at the king's gate. Now I've got a question for you. <coughs> Excuse me. What do you think of when I say to you, or you read the words, the king's gate? What are you picturing there? You're thinking about a very literal big iron sort of city gate. Is that what you're thinking of? The king's gate. Well, if so, can I ask you just to forget that for a moment? That's not the city gate. You see, the king's gate here, it was actually this enormous administrative building in the citadel of Susa. So not a gate as such, but this huge, huge center for all the sort of civic and governmental work of the empire. And I'm pretty sure you can picture the scene. Because Mordecai's in there just now. He's in this big administrative center. And what's he doing? He's working away, working away. And what happens? All of a sudden, he hears a couple of people nearby. They're whispering to each other. Can it be? Yes. They are conspiring. They are planning to assassinate the king. So what is Mordecai going to do? Well, what he does is immediately he runs off and he tells Queen Esther about this. She in turn tells the king. And what happens? These two rebels with wonderful names. Aren't they wonderful names? What was it? Big Thana and Teresh. These rebels, they are taken out and they are hanged. Now, friends, this is what I want you to see. There is something missing in that section of scripture. There's something missing. You see, in the Persian Empire at the time, it was absolutely customary, it was expected that if somebody was to do something for the crown, you know, if somebody was to demonstrate some loyalty to the king, it was expected that that person would be rewarded with great riches. All right, there was, at the time, there was this big, big, huge book of benevolence and so if you did something, displayed some loyalty to the crown, to the king, your name goes to the book, and you're going to get all this financial and material reward. Right? Huge big reward. So do you see what's missing? Like Mordecai's done that, hasn't he? He's been a threat to the king. He's displayed all his loyalty. What does he get? What does he get? Nothing. Like nada, not a thing. In fact, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. So Mordecai's done all this. And it says, after that, Xerxes honors Haman. No, Mordecai. Mordecai's done it. Haman's honored. You see, Mordecai's acted with integrity. He's acted with honor, and what has happened? He, friends, has been thoroughly and completely overlooked. So this morning, I, I, I want to ask you this. Does that whole situation there, does that sound familiar to you today? Is it the case just now that you find yourself in your life consistently being overlooked while other people advance? Is that how it feels to you just now? In your work life? In your private life? You've been overlooked. 
You're calling out with Jeremiah. Why is it that the, the ways of the wicked prosper? Like your situation, you know, you are working hard. You know, you're trying to live as a Christian with integrity. You're trying to honor your boss, aren't you? You're trying to work hard. But what's happening? It's other people who are being favored. It's other people who are advancing. Does that sound familiar to you this morning? If so, I would ask you to grasp the whole of the story of Esther. Because you know what happens in this book, don't you? Most of you do. You know that later on in this book, you've been there, I've been there. King Xerxes is going to be in his room and he's not going to be able to sleep. He's tired and he cannot sleep. What does he do? He calls for that big book. He reads of this event with Mordecai, doesn't he? He wants to reward Mordecai. And so perfectly will that be timed by God that Mordecai is going to be able to use that later event for the deliverance of the Jews. Do you see the point, friends? There was purpose behind this present lack of honor. There was a reason why he was being overlooked. So are you today wondering, why is it me? Why is it me that's always overlooked? Are you wondering, how is it as a Christian that I respond to these things? How about this? One, today you trust, continue to trust in God's purposes. Two, even in this situation, as hard as it is, try with all your might to bring on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And three, always, always, always as a Christian, have one eye on the future reward that you are going to receive one day. And from whom? That reward you will receive from King Jesus. So we see here something of the injustice of the world. A second thing we see here is the reality of warfare. The reality of warfare. As we move into what is the next chapter, Esther chapter 3, and as we, (coughs) excuse me, encounter some of the enmity here between these two men that we're talking about, Haman and Mordecai, you can see what's happening in chapter 3. The plot to Esther is really deepening a little bit, isn't it? We're getting to the heart of the matter. So what happens? What happens between these two men? Um, well, not only does Xerxes promote and advance uh, this man, Haman, but crucially what he does is he commands everyone, every single person who's working in that administrative center, he commands them all to bow down and to pay homage to this guy Haman. So you got that? Everyone is commanded to bow, get down, bow down and honor this man Haman. Something I'm sure that you noticed that Mordecai is <laughs> not even a part of. He refuses to do that. So I've got another question for you. <coughs> Why does he not do it? Why does Mordecai not bow? Like, if you think about it, he knows very well from that episode of Vashti, 
He knows very well what it's going to mean to disobey the king. He knows there's going to be massive consequences to this. So why does the guy not just bow down and honor Haman? Well, get this. It's not about worship. Is that what you were thinking? Were you thinking, okay, he's not bowing down because he's a a good child of Israel and he knows you only bow down to God. Is that what you were thinking? It's not about worship. I mean, think about it. Let's say today, Queen Elizabeth, suddenly the door is open and Queen Elizabeth comes in here. Always wanted that to happen. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't have far to come, you know. It's an 11 o'clock service. I'm sure she could make it. It would be great if she did. But let's say that she did come in today, just now. The door's open and Queen Elizabeth comes in. What, what are we going to do? We're going to rebuke her for being late for church. But what else would we do? We would, some people would curtsy at the end of the service. Mom, and some of us would bow. Would we not? You see that that's what this is about. Like it's, it's, it's not about worshipping him and it's about showing him some sort of civic respect and honour. It's not about worship. And neither is it about jealousy. Is that what you're thinking? It's not that, that he, eh, Mordecai is absolutely consumed with envy with Haman. It's not that. So wait a minute. Why on earth does the man refuse Why does he refuse to bow? And much, much more to the point. Why does Haman react the way he does? Surely you're asking that question, are you not? I mean, Mordecai refuses to to, to bow. What does Haman do? Not only does he want to kill this man, but he wants to use this as an excuse to eradicate all of the people of of Israel. Are you not agreeing with me that that's slightly over the top? He refuses to bow, so I will wipe out a whole people group. What's going on here? Why do these two men hate each other like this? Friends, to understand, to answer that, what we must do is have an appreciation of how biblical narrative works. This is important. In Hebrew narrative, the way the person is introduced in a story, it often sheds light on the role that that person is going to play as the story progresses. Now, let me say that another way, just so we've all got it. What is said about a character in Hebrew narrative, right at the beginning, it's crucial Because very often it sheds light on what that character is going to do. What is going to be important about that character as the story progresses. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you've already seen an example of this. Because do you remember how Mordecai was introduced to us? Do you, if you were here a couple of weeks ago? What was said about him? I'll I'll tell you. There was a man in the citadel of Susa, a Jew. And we know because of that, that sort of introduction, we know that it is his Jewishness. It is his ethnicity that is going to be crucial in the unfolding drama of Esther. You see, what is said about them in the introduction is important for his role in this story. So let me ask you, 
How was Haman introduced? Look at verse 1. Xerxes honors Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. So do you see? It is the very fact that Haman was an Agagite that is going to be crucial to this story. So come on, what was an Agagite? Who on earth was Agag? Well, to explain that, let me, let me tell you this. This week I was, I was thinking about the very first time that I ever preached in a church. Very first time that I ever got up to a pulpit and preached. And it was a disaster area. It really was from start to finish. See, the problem with this was that uh, prior to preaching, I just didn't know what to preach. You know? Like, as far as I was concerned, this was not just my first time of preaching. As far as I was concerned, it was also my last time that I was ever going to do this as well. So what do you preach? You see what I mean, though? Like, it's a big book. And you're only going to preach one sermon. And you really want to make a good job. What do you do? What do you... I was like, well, John 3.16 is a bit predictable, you know. So what do you preach? So this is what I did. I, I prayed... Uh, uh, what foolishness. I said to God, God, whatever comes next in my devotional reading, <laughs> that's the text that I'm going to use for my sermon. That's what I'm going to preach, God. Whatever comes next in my devotional reading. And it was a complete and utter, a complete unmitigated disaster. Because what came next in my devotional reading was one of the most difficult and one of the most controversial verses in all of Scripture. Because it was from 1 Samuel 15, where Almighty God commands King Saul to wipe out and exterminate all of the Amalekite people. Right? And there's me, my first time in the pulpit, just shaking, trying to make sense of, of that. Now here's where I'm going with that. Do you know the story? Do you know what King Saul does? Is it? King Saul listens to that command of God. He takes out his sword and he begins well. He begins to kill the Amalekite people. But what does he do? He kills nearly all of them. And he lets someone go free. He sets free the wicked Amalekite king. This vicious, sinful, evil enemy of God. Saul lets him go free. So do you see what I'm going to say to you? Who was the king? What was his name? This hostile, ungodly man. His name was Agar. The ancestor of Haman. And wait, who exactly is Mordecai? You say he's a Jew, but what else were we told? He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was from the son of Kish, a direct descendant of Saul. Do you see what's going on in Esther chapter 3? This is not here just a skirmish because one man refuses to bow. This here is part of a much greater and bigger spiritual battle. These two men here, Haman Mordecai, they stand 
hand as representatives, one of the kingdom of God, the other of the kingdom of Satan. Do you see? This here is a spiritual fight. Friend, are you a Christian here this morning? Are you? Are you saved? I would ask that this episode between these two men, that it act as a reminder for you. Because as the pastor of this congregation, I tell you, this troubles me. I think at this point in the life of the congregation, that we in here are far too like those soldiers of World War II. You know the ones. The ones who on Christmas Eve... They paused and they concentrated on playing football together. Do you see? As Christians, we're forgetting that we are at war. And I want you to see today that you are at war as a Christian. Like, see that with, with Haman and Mordecai. There is a spiritual background to the details of your life. Today, as a Christian, Satan, the powers of evil, they are seeking to attack you today. So I would ask that you see that, and that today you adorn yourselves anew with the whole armor of God. Would you ready yourselves for war? Put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ready yourself for the war. Because, get this, Christ is victorious, is He not? He's triumphant and you and I in Him, we are triumphant. But the truth is that there are still battles for us to fight. Today, tomorrow, this week, there are spiritual battles that all of us as Christians, we still have to fight. So we see there the reality of warfare. The third thing we see is the foolishness of world powers. The foolishness of world powers. Now, if you're following the story, as we enter into this sort of third section that we've got here, what we see is Haman... So we've established that he is the enemy of God. It's said in the text. Haman now begins to set in motion this horrible plan that he's got to eradicate and exterminate the Jews. Do you play board games? Do you? I know you do. (laughs) Monopoly, so forth. The dice in the board games. That's what we're dealing with. Did you notice? Haman casts lots. He uses what are called pur or poor. And they're like the dice that we would use in a board game. And he uses these, and this is important, to set the date for the annihilation of the Jews. You can imagine how horrific that is. Just out go the dice, out go the pure, and he sets a date for when they will wipe out. But he's got to get permission for this, doesn't he? Like Haman, we've established, very powerful man. But he can't just go and do this. He's got to go to Xerxes to get permission. So off he trots and he speaks to the king. But this is what is brought out in the text. Just how bizarre that interaction between those men becomes. 
Did you see what it was like? Haman comes into the palace, gets into the king, says, excuse me, king, what I want to do, I've got this plan. I want to wipe out a whole people group from across the entire kingdom. And did you see Xerxes' response? He looks at Haman and he says, okay then. Now, did you see how mad that response is? Do you see how crazy it is? Did you notice that there is no due process from the king? He does not press for any further information. He does not really ask why it is that Haman wants to kill all of these people. And do you know what is most remarkable about all of this? At no stage in the interaction does the king ask which people group it is that you're going to kill. Isn't it incredible? Like, isn't it the most devastating display of recklessness and foolishness by a world leader? But here's the thing. With that theme, (laughs) would it not sit rather comfortably with the people of the United Kingdom today? You see what I mean, do you not? In the aftermath of Brexit... Are there not people up and down the land sitting on either side of this political divide? And they are dismayed. And they are utterly shaken to the very core of their foundation. And they are appalled at the rashness of their leaders. Are they not? They are appalled, dismayed at the recklessness of their governing authorities. Well, I want you to see today that you and I as Christians... (laughs) Surely you see that we've got to be different to that. Like all of this, it should not surprise you or or me. We surely see that, that we should not place all of our hope into these failing world powers. Is that not correct? Because what do we know as the people of God? Come on, what does scripture make clear? If you place all of your hope in your political leadership, they shall let you down. Don't you see it? There is only one place, one place for us to place our true and ultimate hope. Surely it is in the Lord God Almighty. And I wonder this, do you see his hand in Esther chapter 3? Do you? Do you see the hand of God here? Because yes, it's gloomy, isn't it? There is this edict now of destruction and it's been rubber stamped by the king and it looks terrible. Here's my question. What was the date? What was the date for it to be read out? Did you notice? Look at verse 12. The edict was to be read out on the 13th day of the first month. Anyone in here know what that means? Can any of you see what it is? This edict of death, it was to be read out on the eve of Passover. Isn't that amazing? This edict of death to be read out to the people of Israel just as they were preparing to remember the deliverance of their God. Don't you see how beautifully timed it is by God? 
even in the reading out of this proclamation of death, he is calling for his people to trust in him. Friends, he is calling for us, even in the failures of our leadership, he is calling for us to look ever to him for our ultimate protection. And I'll end with this. Okay, I'll end like this. Fourth thing. Let's look at the proclamation of death. I know that this portion of scripture in some ways is kind of distant for us, isn't it? Look at us. We're all gathered together, huddled together in the city of London, financial district of London. And we're looking at a section of scripture that's 5th century BC in the Persian Empire. So it's a bit distant. I'm asking you to do one thing before we end this. Try, try and imagine what it was like. Imagine the horror for the people. I mean, we've got to be thinking about the Holocaust. We we do. We've got to be thinking about concentration camps and mass genocide, don't we? Because think about what it would have been like. The king sends out whom? Countless thousands of his ministers. And they all have an edict to read throughout the kingdom. And it is a proclamation of death. Imagine it. Listening to it. Eleven months from this day, all Jews are to be killed. Their possessions, their clothing is to be distributed. All men, all women, all children are to be wiped out. I mean, is it not utterly horrific? Can you imagine the fear that grips the empire? But is it not the case that such is our rebellion and such is the wicked state of our own hearts and our wicked thoughts and our wicked actions? Is it not the case that our king, the Lord God Almighty, that he could justly and justifiably enact such a judgment on us. Isn't that right? That our king, such as our sin against his holiness, that he could justly wipe out all mankind. But instead, what has he done? What is the message of the gospel? What has God done? Don't you see it? What is today's date? What is it? The 3rd of July? Something like that? Don't you see what God has done this very morning? Do you see it? He is sent out into the empire countless thousands of his ministers. And they have, in these churches throughout the world, they have an edict to read And is it a proclamation of death? Is it? No, what do I have? A proclamation of good news. That to save people from this sort of judgment, God has sent his own son into the world. And what has he done? What has Christ done for his people? Do you see it? He has done this. He has done Esther chapter 3. Christ sold for a few pieces of silver. Christ facing the the horror and the terror of death and murder. His clothes distributed to the crowd. Do you see it? He's done this. He's done all of this 
that that is the proclamation. A proclamation of good news that is resounding throughout God's kingdom today. And so one question, one question remains. Are you saved from that judgment? Are you saved by the blood of Jesus? Have you today recognized the glory and the splendor of the Christ? And have you bowed the knee in worship to him? Have you? If so, it's glorious. Because you have in your spiritual future nothing to fear. Nothing. Because your Savior has stood toe to toe with his foe. Hasn't he? Your saviour, he has stood head to head with Satan. Not at the front of a stage. But on the cross of Calvary. And because of that, you in Christ will never ever face the eternal wrath and anger of God. Isn't it good news? What a saviour we have. Praise God, we have a king in whom you and I can trust, trust eternally for our protection. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray.